The following sermon was delivered on September 5th, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Ministerial assistant Zachary Groff delivered this sermon entitled The Lord Provides All on Ruth 4, 13-22. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com or contact us at info at antiochpca.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. We began this series on Ruth, The Search for a Redeemer, uh, many uh, weeks ago at this point, several months ago. And in that very first sermon, I posed a question to you, if you were here. If you weren't here, I'm posing the question to you again tonight. The question is, what do you need? What is your greatest need? And I listed up some, uh, or I cooked up and, and presented to you some options for different hearers in the audience, for wives and mothers, for husbands and fathers, for students, for teachers, for children, for adults. We all have different needs and sets of needs as we make progress through our lives. But what I argued to you is that every fallen human being, every one of us born of woman brought into this world is in need of one thing above all else, and that is a Redeemer. And in that regard, no matter what other differences we have with Ruth and Naomi, by the many thousands of years that separate us, by the conditions of our lives and of their lives, yet we held this in common with them and their narrative in this book, and that is a great need for a Redeemer. And shall a Redeemer be found? Well, what began many weeks ago as a narrative of need, as, a, as I put it, need for food, a need of redemption, a need of a husband, a need of children, has become a book of blessings. Blessing after blessing. I rehearse some for you. Think about it. In the first chapter, we have a blessing. Naomi blesses her daughters in seeking to direct them back to Moab, back to the, the homes of their fathers. She blesses them and says, go and be fruitful there. And then in chapter 2, we have a blessing upon Boaz by his servant in the field and a blessing by Boaz to his servants. And then a blessing of Boaz to Ruth. And then a blessing upon Boaz by Naomi in two different instances. And then in chapter 3, we have a glorious blessing from Boaz to Ruth again for all that she's done and in her design and approaching him to secure from him redemption. And here in our passage tonight in chapter 4, we have yet another blessing, perhaps the ultimate blessing for this book, a blessing declared by the women of the town of Bethlehem upon Naomi, she who was empty and then through four chapters of narrative has experienced fullness and filling beyond her wildest imaginations. The narrative of need has proven to be a book of blessings indeed. What I seek to show you tonight from our passage as we close up this series is that the Lord meets his people's every need by providing his church with a redeemer and king. The Lord meets his people's need, every need, by providing his church with a redeemer and king. And we'll break this up on two divisions. And they're pretty obvious from the text because you see that there's two very different kinds of, of text here in our passage. 
In verses 13 to 17, we'll consider how the Lord provides his church with a redeemer. Basically, how the birth of Obed comes into being and the ramifications of that for his church, for his people. And then that genealogy at the end, this little epilogue, this even what I argue is a summary of everything that's come before in verses 18 to 22, will then explore how the Lord provides his church with a king, specifically providing his church with a king, marching to David, from Perez to David, with Boaz and Obed right in the middle. So first, let's consider how the Lord provides his church with a redeemer. Look at verse 13 with me. This is the climactic resolution, if I can put it that way, mixing literary terms, of of everything that's gone on in this story. So Boaz took Ruth and The way this word is being used here, it's really took Ruth as his wife, took her in marriage, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, literally gave her, gave to her conception, and she gave birth to a son. This this verse here shows how the Lord provides a redeemer through a marriage in this case. The Redeemer, the one who's redeeming the situation, we know to be Boaz. But there's some ambiguity in the text. And what we see fleshed out here, and I would argue this, is that Obed, in fact, is the Redeemer that the text has been driving to immediately and then on the way to David, who's going to be, serve as a Redeemer, as king of the entire nation's chaos during the time of Judges. But look at a couple of the details here in this provision of a redeemer through marriage. There's one very interesting phrase. The Lord enabled her to conceive in the New American Standard, but I like the footnoted translation more. The Lord gave her conception. This is the only place in Scripture where this language is used. In the Old Testament, I should say. It's used in the New Testament in one very conspicuous place, isn't it? But in other narratives of barren women who are then given children, we have Hannah, who's given Samuel. We have uh, Sarah, who is given Isaac. You have Rachel, who's given Joseph. You have Leah, who's given several sons, starting with Reuben and then most famously with Judah. There's a uniqueness here that isn't, isn't present in any of those other narratives. And those other narratives were told that the Lord remembered so-and-so and opened her womb. We're told that the Lord um, heard her prayer, her cry, her desperation, and opened her womb. But here and here alone in the Old Testament, we're told that the Lord gave, immediately entered in, intruded into the human situation, and directly gave conception. Now, does that mean that this was um, some kind of virgin birth like with Mary? No, no. Obviously, Boaz is the instrumental means here, as indicated by the text. But still, the immediacy, the immediate involvement of God himself is crucial for understanding the significance of what's going on in our passage tonight. There's one other place in this book where God is said to give a blessing, to meet, directly meet a need. And that's in chapter 1, verse 6. 
where we read that Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. Everywhere else in this book, all the many blessings received from God's hand are through different agents, through Boaz, through Naomi and Ruth, or are, are mediated through different mechanisms that are at play in the plot. But in the relief of the famine, and then the bringing forth of progeny, the relief of barrenness, God is directly involved. If at no other level than an exegetical level, but this has great theological import. God is uniquely involved here in the provision of a redeemer through this marriage, through the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. He has relieved the famine, which was the first problem of the text of the book. And now he is relieving the barrenness. Secondly, the Lord provides a redeemer to a family. Look at verses 14 through 16 with me. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel, speaking specifically of the one that is born to Ruth and by extension to Naomi. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age, literally a sustainer of your gray hair, for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. So we see that this new family with Ruth and Boaz, into which this Redeemer then comes by a birth to a couple, is actually the gifting of a Redeemer to a whole family. We've made this point over and over again as we work through the book that the situation is not merely concerned with Ruth as an individual, but of the family of Elimelech, of whom Ruth and Naomi are merely remnants. Well, here, those remnants are brought back into fullness. Remember, Ruth had no prospects at the beginning of our story. Naomi was empty. And now... Those women who had no future before as a family now have a future as a family. The name, the family name, will carry on and proceed and progress. And Naomi, who was empty, now has a lap full of baby. And she has this beautiful role as a nurse to her grandson. And this is a glorious blessing bestowed upon them. And the blessing, in turn, is flipped back to God in verse 14. Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today. Now, thirdly, in, in this exploration of how the Lord provides His church with a Redeemer is the fact that the Lord provides a Redeemer to not only a couple or a marriage, not only a family, even extended, but also to His church, to the society of his saints, of his chosen ones. And this is where verse 17 comes in. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. In biblical literature, the giving of a name is very, very important. He who has your name has a claim on you. 
Remember when, um, when Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord in Genesis, what does he demand from him? He demands from him his name. He wants to have a claim on him. He wants to know who it is he's dealing with. He, he doesn't necessarily want to control in some oppressive way, but he wants to have an interest in this, this, this figure, this mysterious figure with whom he's been interacting all night. And what, does angel of the Lord give him a name? No, not really. But he gives him a new name for himself, changes it from Jacob to Israel, he who struggles with God, and thus defines Jacob because he, as the angel of the Lord, as the Lord himself in a pre-incarnate state, is able to give Jacob a new identity, a fresh, um, a fresh identity or name. Well, here, notice who gives the name to Obed. It's not Naomi. It's not Ruth. It's not Boaz. It's the neighbor women. The neighbor women, the women of the town, they give him a name. Why is it that this detail is included? Not merely that his name is Obed, but that these women named him Obed or set this name upon him or at least identified it and called it out. It's because they recognized the significance, and we should recognize the significance of this birth, not only for a family, but for the church, for the covenant community. And the way that it's phrased in verse 17 is looking forward, and then in verses 18 to 22, we're going to look back, so we'll develop that. But in verse 17, it's looking forward to the coming king, David. And what does David accomplish for the people of Israel? It is David, not Saul, but David, that brings to a conclusion the tumult and violence and chaos and disorder of the time of the judges in the establishment of his dynasty, of his kingdom, of, of his family line. And so Obed here, in coming forth from Boaz and Ruth, in filling Naomi, is also filling the great need of the whole society, of the whole people of God, in preserving a line that will finally culminate in David as the king of Israel. Well, what do we know about David? We heard about it from Revelation. And we can go to the beginning of Matthew and the beginning of Luke as well to flesh this out more. But David, he is but a forerunner, a forefather of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who finally and ultimately ascends to his throne to take the throne of David, to be seated at the right hand of God, and to operate a government as our king that dispels all disorder and chaos and violence in spiritual realms. And that is what this text looks forward to for us, that the Lord provides his church with a redeemer. He does it through a marriage and through a family, but ultimately for his church, for his people, for you and for me, for all those who call upon the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Beloved, we have a great need for a Redeemer. Again and again, hitting that point home. For we have been born into sin, heirs of corruption, in great need of deliverance from darkness and death. And what this narrative has been about, and the culmination of it even tonight, is that God has addressed all of these dire needs of ours, that have so many physical manifestations, but are ultimately spiritual at root. 
And he has addressed it in the person, Jesus Christ, who is the root and branch of David, the descendant thereof, the heir of his throne, the awesome king of glory. How ought this to then shape your conduct in this world, racked as it is with sin and chaos still? It should give you some confidence to go forth, to go forth and proclaim his goodness. It should also give you confidence to go to your knees in prayer, knowing that he is able to resolve every difficulty. When we, you know, we're coming up on our one-year anniversary of this uh, church reorganization effort to bring it, uh, bring it home for us. And I've been reflecting on, you know, just how, just how unlikely it is, or it was, especially at that time, that the efforts Dr. Piper and our provisional session and I and many of you uh, would expend would actually result in any kind of fruit. And, I mean, we, we face all kinds of difficulties. We really had no money dedicated to the purpose, really. Uh, we had a building with a lot of physical needs, didn't we? <laughs> and not a whole lot of time to address them. And certainly not um, unending supplies of expertise either. And yet, every time we prayed together and prayed with boldness and confidence approaching the throne of grace, we did so knowing that he's able to accomplish all that he has uh, for us to accomplish or to do in this place for the extension of his kingdom. And he's blessed again and again and again meeting with somebody on Thursday morning, and they reminded me of how the Lord has blessed this work and answering specific prayers, perhaps even presumptuous prayers in their specificity. And yet, this is the God we serve. He who will bring forth a Redeemer to go forth on our behalf. The Lord provides His church with a Redeemer. Now, secondly, considering the epilogue here in verses 18 to 22, the Lord provides his church with a king. We've already spoken about David as a king, but there's more that can be said. First, the Lord provides a king who shall lead his people. Look at verses 18 through 20 with me. Now, these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram. And to Ram, Aminadab. And to Aminadab was born Nashon. And to Nashon, Salmon. The number of names in this genealogy are 10, and commentators, both ancient and modern, Jewish and Christian, recognize that set of 10 to be a device very common in Scripture indicating completeness or wholeness and fullness. Well, within that set of 10, there are two numbers that are really important for understanding the purpose of what names are included, because some generations are going to be skipped over when you're putting together a literary summary like this one. And those are the numbers five and seven. In the fifth place, right in the middle, is Nashon. And he corresponds to David in the 10th place in this way, he shall lead his people. Now, when you think about all the figures in the Bible that you know really well, I would be extremely surprised if Nashon was at the top of that list for you. But he's actually really important. He was the one who led the tribe of Judah out of Egypt during the Exodus. He was the military leader of the tribe of Judah during the Exodus and going into the conquest of Canaan. 
And his son Salmon was the one who would uh, then go on and marry Rahab, who is one of just three women mentioned in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1, which we'll be looking at in a couple of months as I start the Matthew series. This Nashon led, was a military leader during a very significant time in Israel's history, coming out of the darkness of slavery and, and persecution in Egypt into the promised land, promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. David, as number 10 on the list, corresponds to that, and he, in that, he is a great military leader, even before he's a king. What was it that the people of Israel said about David and Saul? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. He was, the uh, other than Abner, one of the chief military leaders under King Saul in bringing forth order out of the chaos of the time of judges and the, the remnants of conquest unmet in the promised land. And so even in this genealogy, we see that the Lord provides a king who shall lead his people from darkness into light. Secondly, the Lord provides a king who shall bless the nations. In Matthew 1, verses 3 to 6, we see this genealogy repeated and expanded somewhat. We're told that, as I said, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, the harlot, it is not clear how the chronology works out. If that's a direct descent, some think it is, and, and that's reasonable. Some think that there was more time in between, perhaps other generations. But the point of the matter is that Boaz descended from Rahab, who was, in fact, a, a Gentile, not of the people of God, but one who came into the people of God. And Boaz then is situated in the midst of this Gentile um, inclusion in a very Jewish genealogy of David and Jesus. Look at verse 21. To Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed. And again, like I said, repeated in Matthew chapter 1. Suffice it to say here that one of the functions of this detail is to show that God, through the king that's coming, is working out the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham to bless the nations through him. Rahab, taken out of the darkness of paganism and confusion and, and woeful immorality and abuse at the hands of wicked men, is brought not merely into a family, into a stable marriage and, and, and having progeny that then go on to be significant in a nation, but is brought into God's church. And to be honored by him for thousands of years. We've been saying her name not as a, as a slur or as a reproach as we would with Jezebel. But as a great honorific, faithful Rahab. And what of Ruth? Yeah, she wasn't a harlot. No, by no means. There's no evidence of that. But she was a Moabitess. A Moabite handmaiden. More worthless than a dog in Israel. And yet, through the book of Ruth, we've seen her progressively become uh, more and more honored and important. And she, too, has been grafted into the people of God. And she has been given great honor as a mother of David and, yes, even of Christ, an ancestor. 
The Lord continues to work in grafting the nations into his people today. So when we read these genealogies, you have to take note of the details. Don't just get lost in the foreign names. But consider what is happening in each stage of, God's, uh, of the history of God's people. And celebrate and rejoice what God is doing and bringing fulfillment of his promises. Evident even in genealogies. Then finally, verse 22 this point, the Lord provides a king to his church, a king after his own heart. And to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. And we know what kind of man David was, what kind of king he was. Though he was a great sinner before God, and he failed in ways that are abominable and atrocious, yet he was one of contrite heart, who turned to the Lord in repentance and faith who called upon the Lord in faith, who depended upon the Lord not only for military success, but also for mercy for himself. And this David was a king after God's own heart. And this David, who's mentioned at the end of this book, is really the culmination of this book. This David should direct us then to his heir, the Lord Jesus our king who conquers and goes forth before us. The Lord Christ is our great king, and he's been provided to us by his father, by the Lord, as a design of grace that we would not perish, but that we would persist, that we would not die, but that we would delight, that we would not be consumed but that we would cry out in victory and praise. That we too would cry out, as it says in verse 14, his name, his name become famous, literally that his name would be cried out in Israel. And that, brothers and sisters, is what we're called to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. I think I know most of you, but if you're here today and that doesn't excite you, if that doesn't inflame a desire within you to proclaim his excellencies, then I would say, what's holding you back? Is it, is it a sense of guilt and sin that you haven't been relieved of because you haven't brought it to him? Is it the weight of your, of your environment pressing down upon us, perhaps a, an oppressive workplace environment or, or difficulties in your family situation or what have you? What is it that's distracting you, that's taking your eyes off of the glory of our King and Redeemer who's been provided to us? Whatever those distractions are, may they fade away. Whatever your disbelief is, may it be expelled by a new affection for this King, this glorious King David, uh, David's heir, the King, our King, Jesus Christ. One final comment which I want to tie it back to our confession of faith tonight. When it says in verse 18, these are the generations of Perez, the phrase there that's being used is a phrase that's very common in Genesis for structuring redemptive history, particularly the history from creation to the calling out of Abraham and basically the calling out of God's visible covenant community within the nation. But there are two other places in the Old Testament where this phrase appears. Here, in Ruth 4, and then in Numbers chapter 3, verse 1, with another, set, another uh, genealogy. Huh. What could that be? 
Well, here we can see that it has to do with kingship, right? It has to do with the creation of a kingship leading forth to David. In Numbers 3, it's the genealogy of Aaron, the priest, and the creation of a priesthood in Israel. In both cases, look at what God provides. He provides a king here in Ruth 4, provides a priest in Numbers 3 with the same language. And if we really want to push this, I don't think this is inappropriate, else I wouldn't do it. He provides in Abraham what he calls a seer or a prophet, one who will declare the will of God for the salvation of all people. God provides to us a king, and we see that gloriously arrayed in our passage but he also provides a priest to pay the penalty for our sins and to intercede on our behalf and a prophet to declare God's will for us for salvation and to instruct us in righteousness. In all three of these great themes expressed, even with this phrase, now these are the generations of in scripture, come together and converge in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our prophet, our priest, and our king. The Lord meets his people's every need by providing his church with a redeemer and king as demonstrated in our passage today and in providing us with a priest and a prophet who can meet our every need, our need for instruction and our need for forgiveness and mercy and grace. So let us rejoice. Let us rejoice even when our lives, and I've spoken to many of you about your testimony. I have my own ringing in my ears as well. Lives that have been marked at different seasons by need and desperation and difficulty, yet by God's amazing grace in Jesus Christ have been turned into, if we were putting them into a book, a book of blessings. Not always clear at every step along the way. And yet, in the final account, in the retrospective, when taken as a whole, yet worthy to be brought before God with praise and thanksgiving. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.